But let's go before God in prayer this morning. Father, I pray that you would come now through your spirit and you would release some here um, who are in prisons, imprisoned in a state or a season of despair through this gospel word. Lord, that your people would taste the gospel and the good of the gospel this morning. Now, so I ask for your spirit to come and do what I can't do through this text and, and just ignite this text and set it on fire for the sake of our people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we're continuing our series through the uh, book of Jonah in a, in a sermon which series which we're entitling, The Gospel According to Jonah. And as I've said before, this is a storied presentation of the gospel. And here's what we've seen so far in, in Jonah. Uh, Jonah has been running from God because God told him to go to Nineveh. And Jonah didn't like the sound of that, so Jonah said no. And then God goes after Jonah, and he creates a storm for Jonah. And basically throws a storm down on Jonah's slice of life to get his attention. And Jonah hardens his heart, and he continues to rebel against God. And he continues to stay in a hardened state. And so God comes after him harder and turns up the heat. Eventually, Jonah gets thrown off the ship by the sailors when they find out that it was his fault that this storm had come upon them. And so they throw Jonah over. Then God, um, out of nowhere, miraculously, either creates a fish or takes a pre-existing fish and has that fish swallow Jonah. Um, and Jonah stays in that fish for three days and three nights. And that's where we were last week, where Jonah begins on his trajectory towards repentance with God in the belly of the fish. And we left Jonah there last week as God relents and the fish vomits Jonah onto the dry ground. Now, I love the way that ends. I didn't talk about this last week, but I love this this whole vomiting motif. You know, I don't like it in life, but I like it here because the fish vomits Jonah onto the dry ground. And, and what mercy is this that we see here? Because Jonah is imprisoned. He's imprisoned in an utterly hopeless state. He's in a fish. And yet when God commanded the fish to release him, the fish did it at once. Which means that when we repent and we, when we humble ourselves, when we seek God's face, guess what we can expect? God to be gracious. We can expect that. Now, one thing this tells us is that God is far greater than all of our circumstances, which means that nothing in this life that traps you has the authority to keep you trapped if God says enough. That's a comforting thought for me. Um, at, At God's word, everything obeys. Everything, addictions, depression, despair, danger, sorrow, sadness, sickness, pain, persecution. Name your list. Get your list together. Everything obeys at the command of God. Everything. And that's a comforting thought. And I think it was certainly, we have to assume it was comforting for Jonah. Because finally, Jonah is on the dry ground. Imagine him all slimy. It probably smells terrible after having been in a fish for three days. And by the way, this really happened. All right. So he's on, he's on the dry ground. He's, he's laying there. And all of a sudden, he realizes God has delivered me. And here I am on this beach, smelly and dirty 
and, 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 and God has delivered me. I don't think he's worried about the fact that he stinks. He's probably excited that God has delivered him. And, and he's on dry ground and he's delivered and he's delighted and probably he's disqualified. Right? I mean, Jonah has stood in defiance against God. His rebellion has been flagrant. So at this point, we can probably safely assume that at least he'll have to suffer some consequences for his sin. Right? And certainly we can say that at least we're sure that Jonah, we certainly won't be restored to ministry. Uh, That's what we think. That's our default position because we are vindictive by nature. That's who we are as people. We like to pay others back. But we suddenly in Jonah 3 are slapped With this radical, unflinching, unstoppable, unswerving, and relentless grace of God all over again. Just when we expect Jonah to suffer, Jonah is wrecked by the outrageous grace of God. And that, I think, is the point of Jonah 3, 1 through 3. God's scandalous grace. Grace that is vast unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. See, I'm convinced that the gospel of grace is way more drastic, way more offensive, way more liberating, and way more shocking than we realize. In fact, there's nothing... I think this is a safe statement. There's nothing that seems more radically unbalanced in life than God's grace. And, and I'm sure that there's a depth to the gospel that we have not seen. I don't care how mature we are as a church. There is a depth here to the gospel that we have not seen. And Jonah 3 takes us to a depth that I think is almost uncomfortable. See, look what Jonah has done. I mean, in the face of Jonah's deliberate sin and rebellion, instead of being disqualified for ministry, Jonah is restored to ministry. And I just stop and consider what marvelous grace this is to not only restore Jonah to God's favor, but to restore Jonah to God's ministry. It's to the praise of God's grace Friends, that our salvation progresses beyond forgiveness all the way to restoration. And if you're like me, then this kind of grace creates in you an almost sort of an unsettling feeling. It seems unfair. To some of us, it actually seems disturbing. Dane Ortland, which is the son of Ray Ortland, um, has said this. This is so good. Well, I wish I could read for you like three, four, five pages of this book. It's fantastic. And and, and it's a book about the gospel called Defiant Grace. Now listen to what he says here. This is so good. For the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ is not measured. This grace refuses to allow itself to be tethered to our innate sense of fairness reciprocity and balancing of the scales it is defiant the jesus of the gospels defies our domesticated play by the rules morality in fact 
It was the most extravagant sinners of Jesus' day who received his most compassionate welcome. And it was the most scrupulous law abiders who received his most searing denunciation. The point is not that we should therefore take up sin. The point is that we should lay down our silly insistence that seeks to leverage our sense of self-worth with an ongoing moral record. Better a life of sin with repentance than a life of obedience without it. That's, that is so well said. I mean, he, Dane Ortland is exactly right. And that's the kind of grace that we see on display in Jonah 3. And it's the kind of grace that makes you squirm in your seat. See, in light of that, let me start with a thesis this morning. If that's true, and it is, it's undeniably true, then if that's true, then here's the thesis. God is the most reliable object of worship in the entire universe because God extends grace like no one and nothing else. Let me say that again. God is the most reliable object of worship in the entire universe because God extends grace like no one and nothing else. What is it that sets God apart from every other object of worship? Answer, his amazing grace. Who else can you lean on like that? In life. And so that's what makes God more reliable, among other things, more reliable than any other object on the face of this universe. Now, why do I say that? What what is it that's so, as Philip Yancey says in the title of his book, what's so amazing about grace? What what is it that's so amazing about grace? Down through the years, you have probably heard many definitions for grace. I have too. You've seen them, you've read them, you've listened to them. Jim Packer, for example, is famous for using the acrostic G-R-A-C-E to define grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, I think that's a really good definition. I think that's a, a fine definition. I think it's a helpful definition. It's easy for people to remember. It's theologically correct. It's good. It's a good definition. Recently, though, I've come across some other definitions that I think may serve us in being more helpful. And one of them is a compilation by Tim Keller and Tully and Shavidjan, and it goes like this. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Let me say that again. Grace is unconditional acceptance Granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Now that's very good. In fact, the only thing that I might nuance or change about that is the word unconditional. And here's why. Theologically correct term. But here's why. David Pallison makes the case, and I think rightly, that the word unconditional in our culture carries with it some unhelpful ideas. He says, listen, the term unconditional has a noble theological lineage in describing the grace of God. 
Unfortunately, the way people commonly use that term muddies the waters. Today, unconditional love carries cultural baggage. It, it is wedded to words such as tolerance, acceptance, and affirmation. Now, let me stop before I go on with, uh, with, with Pallison's quote here and say, I think he's right. I, I think he's on to something here uh, with a choice of this word. Um, in our part of the world, this term, unconditional, has taken on a meaning. It's taken on a meaning that's actually foreign to the Bible. And herein lies the problem, which means we may need to find an alternative. I mean, we're faced with two options, either sort of reclaim the word and help people understand what it really means or use a different word. And, and, and so Pallison offers this alternative. Here's what he says. In that sense, God's love is better than unconditional because God does not accept me just as I am. God accepts me, God loves me despite how I am. By repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Christ, God loves me as Jesus is. That's what union with Christ is all about. He loves me enough to devote, he loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. Perhaps we could call it Contra-conditional love. God has blessed me because his son has fulfilled the conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not in order to earn love, but because in Christ I am already loved. I'm so thankful for Pallison's nuance there. I think it's really helpful. Now that's the picture of God's beautiful grace in Jonah 3. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And, and that's precisely why my thesis is this, that God is the most reliable object of worship in the entire universe because God extends grace like no one and nothing else. So the argument I'm making is that no other object in this life can grant you that kind of acceptance in the face of your sinful and fallen condition. Anybody here not sinful and fallen? Anybody here not feel that on a regular basis? No one else can grant you that kind of love in the midst of that. Nothing else you live for, no person or thing in your life can give you that kind of acceptance. Career can't do it. Your husband can't do it. Your wife can't do it. Your kids can't do it. Getting rich can't do it. Buying stuff can't do it. Popularity can't do it. Status can't do it. Your own name and reputation can't do it. Only God can do it. Only God can give you grace in this way. And that's what Jonah is receiving from God. Notice verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Did Jonah deserve that? Did Jonah deserve for the word of the Lord to come to him a second time? And no. And, and yet contrary to who Jonah is and what Jonah has done, God extends grace. And that's the type of outrageous grace we see here. Now, the amazing thing here about the second time is that God comes to us, listen, despite our sin, a second time. 
Really, this whole story of Jonah, if you look at it from a, of a sort of a different vantage point, this whole story about Jonah is a story about a God who goes after sinful fugitives. All kinds of sinful fugitives. In fact, everyone in this story is messed up except God. Everybody. The, the sailors are messed up. Jonah's messed up. Nineveh's messed up. I mean, the sailors are idol worshippers. Serving their pagan gods and goddesses. Jonah is a self-righteous racist. And, and Nineveh is, is like the sin city of the ancient world. You thought Las Vegas was bad. Nineveh was atrocious. Now, why would God show mercy to any of these people? Why, why would the sailors be moved to conviction on the ship? What, what did they do to deserve that? Why should Nineveh get an opportunity to repent? And why did Jonah get a second chance? What did he do to deserve that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love which he has for us, made us alive. By his grace, by his grace, you are saved. See, here's what's happening with Jonah. God, who is holy and righteous, is choosing to forget Jonah's sin of disobedience. Instead of hurling Jonah into the depths of the sea to let him drown, he hurls Jonah's sin into the depths of the sea. Instead of counting Jonah's sin against him, God counts Jonah's sin against Jesus, and he takes it as far as the east is from the west. And when God carries your sins away, friends, be sure of this, they're gone. Because God carried them away. God responds, we can say it this way, God responds to enormous sin with extravagant grace. And the fact that Jonah is called a second time tells us a great deal about God's grace. Tons. You say, how do you preach a sermon on three verses? Two and a half. Well, we could do, we could do a month on this. See, o, o. Palmer Robertson says this. God forgets and never holds the thing against you. Think of how wonderful the implications of that one fact are for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He just let that land on you this morning. God does not harbor resentment against you. God does not harbor resentment against you as a Christian. And, and this is the first thing we learn about God's grace is that God holds no grudges. For the Christian, God holds no grudges. Now, isn't that a great thought for you this morning? <laughs> that God holds no grudges. Now that may seem to some of you like an obvious thought. Intellectually. Uh, conceptually, that's just plain. It's obvious. Okay, fine. God doesn't hold grudges. 
Let me sort of tease that out for you so that you feel the weight of this glorious truth. Now, please understand that I'm speaking to Christians. Just understand that. Even though Jonah had run from God and refused to do God's will, God comes to him a second time. Think about this for a moment. How good is it that God comes to us a second time, a third time, a fifth time, a twentieth time? Where would we be if God held grudges against us? God comes to Jonah a second time, and notice what he does not say. God doesn't remind Jonah of his past failings. God doesn't come to Jonah and say, look, man, you really blew it that last time. You really blew it. How dumb of you, Jonah. You you fumbled the ball on the one-yard line. How dumb. No, God doesn't do That's how we talk. Don't translate your attitude to therefore be God's attitude. God is an entirely different being than you are. Now, we can learn something from God in this regard. I, I certainly can. It is so easy to remind my wife and my friends of their past failings, even if it's in my heart. It's so easy. You hold that thing against them. You don't forget it. You you, you just keep it there. It's there. It's not destroyed. You may tuck it away somewhere, but it's still there. In fact, it's, it's easy to remind myself of my own past failings. This is, this is a sin for a lot of us. And, and, and to remind ourselves of our own past failings and to be gripped by guilt. Oh, please hear me. I hope that some of you hear, hear this word. When, when we do that, when you, when you remind yourself of your own past failings and therefore you are gripped by guilt, when you do that, you are losing sight of the liberating power of the gospel. Notice here, God does not remind Jonah of his failure. In fact, his words carry absolutely no rebuke whatsoever. That's why this is uncomfortable. God simply tells Jonah a second time, arise, go to Nineveh. Behold your God. There is no sense here that God is thinking, I went to Jonah the first time. I went to him once, and he refused to do what I said. And now if I show him mercy, I, I just know I'm going to regret this. I just know I'm going to regret this, if I show, but I'm, I'm going to show him mercy, but I just know I'm going to regret this. No. God doesn't do that. This is the God of the second chance. For you golf lovers in here, I know some of you like golf. You know what's happening? God essentially here is telling Jonah to take a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? You know what a mulligan? A mulligan is is in golf is given to a player whose previous shot was really bad, and, and that shot therefore is not counted against his score, and instead they get a redo. That that's what's happening here. God is telling Jonah, "You get a mulligan. Take a mulligan." Get it, get it, you have a second chance. Do it again, Jonah. What grace? No other being in the universe does that over and over and over and over again. You may do that once or twice, 
But you won't do it over and over and over again and over and over and over again because you are sealed with the blood of Jesus. God's commitment and loyal covenant faithfulness to you is to do that over and 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 over again until you die. Someday you will make it to heaven by God's grace and his persevering, your perseverance and his preservation, and you will make it. And there will be a thousand times where God gave you another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance. We could explore this issue deeply. And Herman Bovink has a, an amazing section here on the gospel motivating power of how the gospel influences our sanctification so that we don't get to the conclusion that we're justified by the gospel, but we're not sanctified by the gospel. And Bovink has this fantastic section uh, in in his dogmatics where he says that the gospel is 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 what is driving our sanctification. And. And, and it's crucial that we don't somehow begin to think in our life that, hey, look, I've been justified by grace, but now, man, it's just hard work. It's just hard work and effort, and it's my effort, and it's my hard work. And when I get to heaven someday, it's because of look at all the hard things I've done and the way I've worked. Now, you, we don't get an excuse, and we do have to work hard, and we press in, and we press forward, but it's grace that takes us there. It's grace that takes us there. What grace? No other being in the universe can do that for you over and over. No other object of worship in this life can offer you that kind of grace in the face of your sinful and fallen condition. Nothing. People in this world hold grudges. You hold grudges. We hold grudges. We hold grudges against our husbands. We hold grudges against our wives. We hold grudges against our kids. We hold grudges against our in-laws and our parents and our cousins. We hold grudges against other Christians. We hold grudges against our pastors and teachers. How sad is that? How sad is that that we are to be the one pack in society that is meant to demonstrate to the world that we don't hold grudges because God didn't hold a grudge against us. He freely forgave us in Christ. What a bad testimony we are sometimes. In fact, we count other people's sin against them. That's what we do. You do it. I do it. We all do it. We count other people's sin against them. Listen how different God is. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. What a glorious gospel text this is. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18. God says in his word, all this is from God. And he just got through saying, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Okay, old's passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Stop there for a second. You have the ministry of reconciliation I have a ministry of reconciliation. If in some way you are not involved in a ministry of reconciliation, then there's a, there's a problem, a major problem. Because you've been given a ministry of reconciliation, verse 18. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Here's the phrase, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. Now that begs the question, if God, is not, if God does not count our sins against us, then who does God count our sins against? And the Bible teaches very, very, very plainly that if you don't know God, God counts your sins against you. But if you do know God, God counts your sins against Christ. Thankfully, thankfully, God does not count my sins against me. He counts my sins against Christ. That's why we stand today, the sovereign grace of God, counting my sins against him. Now, if that's what God has done for you and for me, then then. How can we not imitate God and do that for others? That's Jonah's flaw. Jonah won't go to Nineveh because Jonah is counting the Ninevites' sin against them. No other object of worship in the world, friends, will refuse to count your sins against you. But listen, if you are a Christian, then God refuses to count your sins against you. And he can do that because he has counted your sins against Christ. You see, I I fear that we can't handle this truth. The evidence for it, I think, is plain that we can't understand this and the significance of what has happened to us. Because if we did, if I did, if you did, then we would not be so quick to count other people's sins against them. There's a direct correlation between how quick you are to count other people's sins against them and how much you understand the gospel. Which means that unlike the world around us, God's acceptance of us is, 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 is totally and altogether different. Some Christians are in fact quick to count their own sins, as I said earlier, against themselves. And, and that's why they live with sort of a constant, low-grade feeling of guilt all the time. Assess yourself this morning. Assess your heart. Some of you have a hard time facing your past. David Goodwin, a few couple weeks ago in worship, was leading us, and he put up the, that quote that we've seen and heard, that because Jesus lives, I can face yesterday. That's, that's a hugely important point. Some of you have a hard time facing your past. And pastorally, I want to be sensitive here because some of that past is, 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 is serious. Let's not, let's not make light a really dark past. And, and one of the reasons why you struggle facing your past is because the gospel, I believe this firmly, the gospel has not been massaged deep enough into your bones into the very fabric of your being. Intellectually, you understand what I'm saying, but functionally, daily, you struggle to appropriate the gospel. God offers acceptance not on the basis of what we do or don't do, but on the basis of what Christ has already done. 
which means that unlike the world around us, God's acceptance of us is not gained by past achievements or forfeited by past failures. That should liberate you. That should liberate all of us. But sadly, all of us have a tendency to belittle God's grace in one of two ways. Either we pridefully rest on past achievements, pridefully, or we shamefully elevate past failures. On the one hand, the self-righteous person refuses to accept grace. He banks on his own righteousness. But on the other hand, the guilt-ridden Christian struggles to live by grace. He counts his sins against himself and struggles to believe that they've actually been counted against Christ. The fact is, God's acceptance is not gained by past achievements or forfeited by past failures. Christ is all. God does not hold grudges. God is the God of the second chance. And that's the first thing that we see about God's grace. The second thing that we see here is that God makes no deals. God makes no deals. The second thing we see about grace, God does not negotiate. Notice, when you look at verses 1 and 2, God didn't change his original command to Jonah. Verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. And then Jonah, what does he do? He obeys. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Let me just throw this in parenthetically. What is it that motivated Jonah to obey? Grace. Grace. It was gospel. It was a second chance. It was, it was God's redemptive work in Jonah's life. H.L. Ellison says this, though, God does not negotiate. Listen, H.L. Ellison says, in light of Jonah's earlier disobedience, what could possibly be more humbling to him than to be promptly recommissioned with his original assignment? Same thing, Jonah. Same message, same assignment, same God, same prophet. Let's go, Jonah. The only difference here is that Jonah is now listening. He's listening because God went after him, and when God went after him, he got his attention. But make this note, God did not negotiate with Jonah. God did not change his original order for Jonah. It's not like God said, okay, Jonah, listen, I'm sorry. I, 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 I was a bit over demanding the first time around, and I recognize that you're a Jew, and to go into a pagan city, that's an awfully tall order. And so, Jonah, here's what we'll do. I'll tell you what, man. Let's make a deal. I'll accommodate you and give you a task that's a little, a little more palatable, a little easier to swallow. God doesn't do that. God doesn't budge. God doesn't change. God simply will not tell us what we want to hear. God will not, and, and for you and me, God will not tickle our ears. God will not bend to make our lives temporarily better. And that's a great thing about God. It's what separates him from every other object of worship. See, this world will bend to make you happy. This world will bend over backwards to make you happy. If you want to live for temporary comfort, for temporary happiness, there are many choices in front of you. Like I said before, if you want to go to Tarshish, there's a ship right here. 
You can head out tomorrow. You can head out right now. You can leave this sanctuary and, and just, just get on a ship to Tarshish if you want to. It's available. If you want temporary happiness, you can go and get plastered right now if you think that's going to make you feel better. You can do that. Temporarily, you might feel really good with a buzz. Okay, but if you want your life to be temporarily fixed as a ship, if, if you want to live your life for things that help you feel good right now, you can do that. But if you want to live for something that will never die, if you want to live your life not simply to have temporary meaning, but transcendent meaning, Meaning that transcends your job and your spouse and your kids and your family and your sports and your TV and your cars and your stuff. If you want that kind of meaning, then God must become for you the supreme object of your worship. Has he? Has God become that object of worship for you? What have you come here this morning worshiping? What are you living for this morning? Listen to this faithful word. God will not negotiate with you. His grace is not seen in the lessening of his demands toward you. Now, that's a common understanding in our day and age. This is a very common understanding of God. Most people assume, well, see, God is a God of love. And God will accept me, and the way he will show his love and acceptance toward me is by lessening his demands on me. That, that's, that's a common notion today. But you see, that's a dangerous way to understand God's grace. It's erroneous. Listen, God does not demonstrate his grace toward you by lessening his demands on you. He has and always will demand perfect obedience from you. Perfect. Perfect obedience. Now that's bad news. That's really bad news unless, unless some of us in here are perfect. And seeing that none of us are Wesleyan perfectionists, I don't think that anybody's going to say I'm perfect in here. So that's bad news. Again, and here's a, here's a fact. The bad news always precedes the good news. It leads the way. It tills the ground. God's grace is only experienced when you come to an end of yourself. Notice the progression in Jonah's life. Disobedience led to desperation and utter hopelessness. And then, and only then... Did God step in and meet that despair with his grace? That's what the storm and the fish were all about. They were intended mercifully to lead Jonah to a point of absolute desperation. And Jonah had to sense his own sin and helplessness before he would cry out to God for his grace. And when he did, God heard him and led him to repentance. And for us, grace is experienced when we come to the realization that we can never meet God's perfect demands on our own. But that those demands were perfectly met by Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
And, and there's this common notion among Christians that God doesn't save people through law. He saves people through grace. Now, that's a false dichotomy in the Bible. Because what's more theologically nuanced and biblically correct is to say that God's rescue does not come apart from God's law, but God's rescue comes to us in the person of Jesus who perfectly kept God's law for us, for sinners like you and me. So God doesn't lessen his demands. He doesn't negotiate with us. He holds the line. He maintains his standards. Which means if you and I have hope of being rescued, we either have to be perfect or trust in one who was perfect. We do not experience God's rescue. You do not experience God's rescue by trying hard, by performing hard, by keeping God's standards, by performing well. God does not save you through your effort. God does not save God saves us only through the work and effort of Christ. Jesus kept the law for lawbreakers. Jesus was a lawkeeper so that lawbreakers can be reconciled to God. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we should have died. And that tells us something about God that separates him from every other object of worship. It tells us this, that God not only makes demands, but God meets the demands he makes. That that can't be said about any other object of worship in the world. It can't be said about, in fact, any other religion in the world. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God not only makes demands, but meets the demands he makes. The gospel radically, amazingly, and refreshingly comes to us in a totally different way. That, that's why we can sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a sinner as I? Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Friends, God is the most reliable object of worship in the entire universe. Because God extends grace like no one and nothing else. The reason God seeks sinners and saves sinners and sends sinners is because God loves sinners. Nothing else you can live for, nothing else I can live for loves us like God. Know this, nothing will receive you, accept you, and love you as a sinner like God does. Freedom doesn't come from thinking you're good. Freedom comes from knowing you're bad, but Jesus is good. Oh, the deep, deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, take these words and drill them deep into us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. In our hymnal, please, 453.